I was in Seoul, South Korea a few months ago for the first time in my life. And as I walked around the streets of this bustling city, I I noticed a few things. One of the things that came to attention was the fact that there were a lot of people walking around with bandages on their nose bridge or bandages around their head. I wondered if they had just come back from fighting on the border with North Korea. I wasn't sure. When I asked someone why there were so many people with bandages on their face, they told me they were bandaged because they had just come out of some sort of plastic surgery. In fact, in South Korea, having a bandage on your nose bridge is a sign of prestige. Often young girls, upon reaching the age of 18, or as a gift for graduation, would be given the gift of plastic surgery. Can you imagine that? According to a recent study, South Korea per capita is the largest center for plastic cosmetic surgery in the entire world. A research just a few years ago showed that one out of every five women living in Seoul underwent some kind of plastic surgery, which means 20% of the women in Seoul are in disguise. I've thought about this amazing figure and thought how ridiculous this must be. But unfortunately, this is the trend in the culture in which we live, the culture we call the beauty culture, where everyone wants to be beautiful and and handsome in the eyes of the world. It is a culture where we want to look good physically, and so we make comments about weight and and hair color uh, and hair and lack thereof of hair and, and eye size and skin color as if somehow those characteristics determine the worth of a person. And because of this culture that has pervaded our environment, no one is ever content. The light-skinned people want to be darker-skinned. The darker-skinned people want to be lighter-skinned. This is the culture in which we live. And unfortunately, many of us as followers of Jesus Christ, Christians, accept this. Like it or not, we are driven by a beauty culture that focuses on the outward appearance of a person as of primary importance. Oh yes, we talk about what's on the inside, but the reality is we choose and we pick and we assess a person based on their outward appearance. And so as we conclude our series on culture wars this morning, we want to filter the beauty culture through a biblical grid, a biblical framework to see if it is something we are to accept or something we are to transform for Jesus Christ. What does the Bible say about what defines the beauty of a person? What are the qualities we are to look for in others? What are we to value in someone else? Before we turn to a few scriptural verses, I want to take a look at what I believe are reasons why many of us want to be outwardly beautiful. This is by no means scientific, just simply my own personal observations. First of all, the first reason why people strive to be outwardly beautiful and handsome is because they want to be admired. Who doesn't want to be admired? They want to attract attention. They want to be complimented. And Hebit said of them, wow, you are stunning, you are gorgeous, you are handsome, you're beautiful. In that, we focus on the outward because we want to be approved. And here's the thinking. The thinking is, if I look good, then people will admire me. If I can attract someone, then I can get married. If I'm beautiful, then they will admire me. They will think more highly of me. That's the thought. 
And so I find it uh, hilarious at times uh, when I lead Bible study trips to Israel, Jordan, and Egypt that some of the ladies who go on the trip will pack high heels. Now, I'm not making an assessment about high heels, all right? So don't feel guilty if you're wearing them this morning. Talk to your podiatrist. But, but here in a Bible study tour where we're going to basically walk through a lot of rocks and desert, walking perhaps five to six kilometers a day, why in the world would you want to bring high heels? It boggled my mind for many years, and yet one year there was someone uh, I was, was particularly close to, and I felt free to ask her this question. Mind you, she was a single young lady. I asked, why would you pack your four-inch high heels? She said, well, Pastor, let me be honest. Uh, I thought maybe I would find someone here on this trip. Uh, I would attract someone. I just smiled, didn't say anything. It's not my place to comment, which you pack in your bags. But I thought to myself, if you break your ankles on this trip from stumbling, walking on rocks in your high heels, then you're going to really attract a lot of attention. But that's what people do. We focus on the outward for attention, for approval, for admiration. The second reason I believe why people strive to be outwardly beautiful and handsome is because of their own self-identity. They're self-centered. We, we all are. And so in this narcissistic me culture, it's all about me. It's all about myself. No wonder the world revolves around me. And so my identity is tied to my beauty, my handsomeness. The more physically beautiful I am, the more I am someone of worth. And there are a lot of people, unfortunately young women, who believe this. The more beautiful I am, the more I am someone of worth. For these people where beauty defines who they are, you'll find at the core of their life, they have some self-identity issues. The third reason I believe that people strive to be outwardly beautiful and handsome is because that's where they find their confidence. If I look good, then I will feel better. I'll be more confident, more sure of myself. My outward beauty will give me the confidence to engage someone, to look someone in the eye, to talk to them. My worth, my social standing, my confidence in that arena is based on how I look. I remember the story of a husband and wife who were talking after dinner. The, the woman was an elementary school teacher and she was grading a science test that she had made her students take. And she was chuckling as she read some of the answers to her husband. The test she had given was on the human body. And the first question was, name one of the major functions of the skin. She particularly laughed at one of the answers of a child who wrote this in response to the question, name one of the major functions of the skin. The child wrote, to keep people who look at you from throwing up so that they don't see your insides. That about sums up why many of us think we need to be beautiful, the confidence to meet people, so that we have this skin to cover up our inside so that they won't be repulsed by us. But unfortunately, so many of us hide behind this skin that we have. And if we were to peel it away, you would see on the inside a very ugly person. How then does the Bible define beauty? I want to take you through three perspectives this morning. 
the first perspective from that of God and how he defines beauty. The second perspective of how we are to find beauty in others. What, what are we to value in the beauty of others? And then the third perspective or third principle is how we are to see beauty in ourselves. And so we begin with the perspective of God and how he defines beauty. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn with me to the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 16, verse 7. The book of 1 Samuel, chapter 16, verse 7. I'm going to be flipping through a lot of scriptural passages this morning, so be prepared. 1 Samuel, chapter 16, verse 7 reads this. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks. Where? At the heart. The context of 1 Samuel 16, 7 is that the prophet Samuel has been sent by God to anoint the next king of Israel. Saul had been found unworthy, one who did not walk with God, and so there would be a new king. And so God sends the prophet Samuel to the family of Jesse. And there Jesse brings out seven of his oldest sons. And Samuel sees that they are fine warrior specimens. These are manly men. These are men who had fought in the army, strapping men. And if you read the context of this verse, you'll find out that Samuel thought, surely these people, one of them must be the one whom God will appoint as the next king of Israel. But then God spoke to the prophet Samuel and he told him, God does not look at the physical stature of a person. What God is looking for is the heart. Because God is wanting the shepherd boy David to be the next king of Israel. One who at that time did not fit the mold of being a king. And here in this verse, we have the criteria for how We define beauty from God's perspective. Number one of your taking notes. How does God see beauty in us? He looks for a beautiful heart. How does God see beauty in people? He looks for a beautiful heart. That's our first principle. God's criterion for finding beauty is someone with a beautiful heart. I hope you underline that verse because people forget that. God does not look at what a man looks like on the outside. The world tells us the younger, the more beautiful, the more good-looking you are, then you are on the road to success. God says, no. I'm looking for one whose heart is teachable, whose heart is clean, whose heart is ready to learn, whose heart is humble, one whose heart is wise. You see, my friends, there is a depth of beauty to those with a beautiful soul. Now, I'm not saying that you are not to look presentable. I'm glad that you brushed your teeth this morning and you combed your hair. You are to groom yourself well. What I'm saying is, as the world lauds beautiful people with a shallow inner life, God says, I look for the beauty in one whose heart is beautiful. I like what U.S. American President Abraham Lincoln said. The Lord prefers common-looking people. That's the reason he made so many of them. Lincoln, if you were to rank 
men's standards according to ugliness. He would rank pretty ugly. He was known as an ugly man. And yet if you read the writings of this man, you will find the depths of his soul. You will find the tenderness of his writings when he, when he writes the famous Bigsby letter when a woman had five children die in the Civil War. And he writes these beautiful words, I pray that our Heavenly Father may assuage the anguish of your bereavement and leave you only the cherished memory of the loved and the lost and the solemn pride that must be yours to have laid so costly a sacrifice upon the altar of freedom. Yours sincerely and respectfully, A. Lincoln. The very words that were read at the beginning of Saving Private Ryan. When you are to rank the best American presidents, Abe Lincoln is often ranked as number one. He would never win an election today in this media age where we assess a person by their looks. But there was a depth to his soul that God provided this great leader to lead a nation through an amazing civil war. He was a man who grieved with those who suffered a great loss, a man of deep compassion, a loving heart, a tender heart. I would say that God saw in Abe Lincoln a beautiful man. How does God see you this morning? You've dressed up for him, I hope, not for others. And the worship experience that is the 11 o'clock service. If he were to look at you this morning, would he see someone who is beautiful in his sight? Someone whose soul, whose, whose heart is teachable, willing to learn, transformative, transforming. That's where he will find beauty. Turn with me over to the New Testament, to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 3 to 4. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 3 to 4. I want to show you that this principle extends throughout the scope of Scripture. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 3 to 4 reads this. Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which is very precious in the sight of God. Peter echoes the same idea here in his book. Here in the context, he's, he's speaking about the relationship between a husband and a wife. And here he says that a woman's beauty does not come from how she fixes her hair or the jewelry she puts on or the clothes that she wears. Now, he's not saying you can't do these things. Do not let your dormants be merely these things. But the beauty of a person is to come from their spirit, their heart. And here in this context, a gentle and quiet spirit. And note what the Bible says in the end of verse 4, which is precious in the sight of God, which is accepted, which is what God wants. You see, my friends, for God, the beauty of a person does not come from someone's face value. It comes from their heart value. It comes from their spirit What's on the inside is what God is looking at. I like the story told by Ken Crockett. He tells the story of several children in a park. And there in this park was a man with multicolored balloons and was releasing them, these helium-filled balloons. And the children gathered as this man let go of a white balloon to the oohs and ahs of these children. 
And then he released a yellow balloon and then a red balloon, which also flew up and away and to the astonishment and delight of these children. And then a little African boy, black boy, came and asked him, Sir, if you let go of the black balloon, will it go up? The man turned to him and smiled and in all gentleness replied, Son, the color on the outside has nothing to do with it. It's what's on the inside that makes it go up. There's a lot of depth of truth in that statement. The color on the outside has nothing to do with it. It's what's on the inside that makes it go up. That's the perspective of God's view of beauty. It's on what's on the inside of our heart and not on what is the outside. It's beyond that which is skin deep. And yet we're so focused on how dark we are, how light we are. It's not the color. It's not on the outside. It's what's on the inside that God defines as beautiful. Now let's take a look at the second principle. How do we see beauty in others? Turn with me to the book of Proverbs, chapter 31, verse 30. Proverbs 31, 30 reads this. Charm is deceitful and beauty is passing. But a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. I've often wondered why most all the passages about beauty references a woman. I've known men to be as vain as women. And so this applies to all these principles. Charm is deceitful, beauty is passing, but a man, a woman who fears the Lord, he or she shall be praised. Look what the Bible says. It says that beauty is passing, it is temporal. The day you are born is the day you begin to die. That's the honest truth. We are trying to capture the outward beauty, but it is fleeting, it is temporary. That which will be praised, or that which we should praise and honor, is one whose life is spirit-filled. Here, the woman who is praised fears the Lord. She is described as one who honors Him, walks in the light of His Spirit. She shall be praised. She shall be honored as a person of beauty. And therein lies our second principle. To see beauty in others, we are to see and look for a spirit-filled life. The characteristic of beauty in others we are to see as beautiful as something which is honorable is a spirit-filled life. When everything has been stripped away, that's verse 30, charm is deceitful. What do you look like without the makeup? It could be scary. You can't be 21 forever, even if you buy clothes from that store. Beauty is passing. But a woman, a, a man who, who is filled by the Spirit, doesn't matter what age he or she is, is to be praised, is to be honored, is beautiful. I'm reminded of the story of Charles William Eliot, former president of Harvard University, that great university in America. When he was born, he had a birthmark on his face which bothered him greatly. As a young man, he asked the doctors, the surgeons, if they could remove this birthmark on his face. 
But he was told by the surgeons that they could do nothing to remove it. As he writes in his memoir, as someone describes that moment, it was the dark hour of his soul. Crushed, devastated that he could do nothing about what he saw as a, a horrendous sight, this birthmark on his face. But Elliot's mother gave him some wonderful godly advice. She said to him, my son, it is not possible for you to get rid of this hardship. But it is possible for you, with God's help, to grow a mind and a soul so big that people will forget to look at your face. I love that. With God's help, it is possible for you to grow a mind and a, and a heart and a soul so big that people will forget to look at your face. Charles William Eliot is known as one of the best presidents of Harvard University. He is known for the compassion of his heart, the largeness of his heart. He is not known for the birthmark on his face. How about you? What defines you? Can you recognize the beauty in the life of others and in yourself? Can you grow a mind and a heart and a soul so big that people will forget to look at your face? Or do you hide behind your skin so that they won't see and be disgusted by what's on the inside? I'll be honest with you, I don't find myself particularly handsome. I, I really mean that. I don't need your sympathy. I'm just glad that Cindy met me before her LASIK surgery and uh, in clouded vision, she said I was adequate. It's all that matters. There have only been three women in my entire life that have ever found me attractive, my mother, my wife, and my little girl. I don't believe, and I hope this is not the case, that any of you come to this church because of the good-looking pastor. You know, I've never heard that before in nine and a half years here. I've never heard it said, hey, come to GCCP. I hear the pastor is really good looking. Never heard that before. I wish it was so, but I know that's not the case. But I believe the attraction to any pastor or spiritual leader is because of the spirit life that that person has lived. I hope that's the case here. The beauty of a person's life comes out of a spirit filled with the spirit the joy that that naturally radiates out of a person's life look with me at another verse second corinthians four sixteen, the new testament the book of second corinthians chapter 4 verse 16 paul is writing this letter towards the end of his life and here's what he writes for second corinthians four sixteen. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. He's at the end of his life. Paul realizes he is dying. His body is breaking down. He is perishing. The outward man, he says, is wasting away. But look what he says here. My encouragement... And my comfort is in the fact that my soul is being renewed every day. It's being refreshed. My inner beauty is increasing. He cannot roll back the aging process. He cannot cover the aging process. 
This man, so beloved by God, cannot reverse the aging process. Why would God do it in your case? And yet I wonder if meeting Paul at the end of his life versus the beginning of his life, you will find a man more beautiful in his latter part of his life. He says, my life is being renewed every day. The Spirit is giving me joy to live this life. I, I can imagine, as I've mentioned before, as people came to visit him in prison, welcome! Not a hint of regret. Words of comfort to the people who visited him. Words of encouragement, reflecting, thinking, thanking God for people God has brought into his life. There is an inner renewal that is making Paul more beautiful with each day. Outwardly, he's wasting away. Inwardly, renewed every day. The joy of the Lord was with him. It reminds me of a story of a young man who was at a McDonald's and there he met an elderly couple sitting down for lunch. As this young man was observing this elderly couple, he noticed that they had ordered only one meal and an extra empty drink cup. There he observed that the man carefully divided the hamburger in half and then counted the fries, one for him and one for her, until each had half of the fries. Then he poured half of the soft drink into the extra cup and sat it in front of his wife. The old man then began to eat, and his wife sat watching with her hands folded in her lap. The young man decided to impose himself and ask this couple if they would allow him to purchase another meal for them so that they wouldn't have to split this meal. The old gentleman said, thank you, young man, but oh no, we've been married 50 years, and everything has always been and always will be shared 50-50. The young man then asked the wife if she was going to eat. She replied, oh, no, not yet. It's his turn with the teeth. <laughs> I wonder if I get to 50, will Cindy and I be sharing teeth? I hope not. But if you can laugh about life's circumstances at that age, there's a joy, there, there's, a, there's a filling of the spirit, there's happiness that comes out regardless of what age you are. You see, my friends, Paul realized that his beauty, his attraction, is the renewal of his inner life. The joy that comes from a, a walk with Jesus. It comes from being spirit-filled and not by the way that he looks. If you desire a beauty that lasts forever, the miracle of youth, it's found in an intimate walk with God. Being spirit-filled. You will become more beautiful as you age. This inner renewal comes when we don't find our self-identity in the physical aspects of our life, which is decaying every day. But it comes in our walk with God, which renews us, which beautifies us. You know, I've met a lot of older people who try to look young, who try to act young. It's a little bit off. And, and when you get talking to them, you find that they're not happy they're compensating somewhere and somehow. But then I've met so many older people who radiate a beauty that does not come from their wrinkled skin or their graying hair, but it comes from a spirit-filled life. The beauty remains. The beauty expands 
a spirit-filled life is how we are to look for beauty in others. One of my favorite stories is told of the famous artist Renoir. One of his best friends, Henri Matisse, although 30 years his younger, struck up a companionship with Renoir. During the last decade of Renoir's artistic life, he was confined to his home because of his crippling arthritis, which would literally bend and, and crumple his hand. Matisse would visit him daily. In spite of his torturous pain, Renoir kept painting. In fact, he did so almost to his dying day. Some of his most beautiful works, such as The Bather, were completed in the latter years of his life as he struggled with arthritis, every brushstroke, debilitating pain. On one occasion, when Renoir was struggling with particular brushstrokes that day, his friend Matisse said to him, Renoir, why do you continue to paint when you're in such agony? Why? To which Renoir responded, Matisse, the beauty remains, the pain passes. The beauty remains, the pain passes. I wonder as we're all outwardly wasting away, when all has been stripped away, when the exterior is gone, will they find someone in you who is beautiful? When the exterior has been stripped away, is there a beauty that will remain in who you are? To put in your context, when you don't wear makeup, when you don't wear those heels, when you're just wearing ordinary clothes, is there a beauty that still radiates from your life? The beauty remain, the pain passes. Finally, the perspective of finding beauty in ourselves. I'd like you to turn with me to Psalm 139, verse 14. Psalm 139, verse 14, this wonderful psalm. You know it well. Look what the psalmist writes. I will praise you. For I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. You, my friends, are God's wonderful creation. You are His unique creation. You are a child of His, your sons and daughters of the living God. And God did not make a mistake when He made you. He made you in His image, Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. He made you in the Imago Dei, the image of God. Do you ever think about that truth as you complain about how short you are or your nose is not as sharp or your eyes are not as big or you don't have a fold in your upper eyelid or your looks or your skin color? Do you ever come to the truth and the notion that God has uniquely made you in His image? And you carry and I carry the tag that money cannot buy made in the image of God. No other creature in God's created world carries that tag made in the image of God. It is the highest branding there is. 
We often like to wear branded clothes because it makes us feel good, whether it's that swoosh of Nike or the LV bag or the Hermes or the, the coach bag or the Under Armour shirt, whatever, that defines the worth of that object. But regardless of the brand that you wear, you have the tag made by God in His image. What other brand are you looking for? What other better brand? There is none. Made by God in His image. I think the psalmist realized that. And so he came to the realization, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works and my soul knows it well. However God made you, He made you in His perfection. Uniquely made you from anyone else in the world. And therein lies our third principle. When we see beauty in ourselves, we recognize that we are made in the image of God. To see the beauty in ourselves, we come to the understanding that we are made in the image of God. I know you know this verse well. You've memorized it. You've read it many a times. But there's something that people forget, the phrase. So you read this verse, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Yes, yes, Lord, I know, I know. Thank you. Marvelous are your works. Yes, Lord, marvelous indeed are your works. I would never complain. But here's the key. The psalmist says, and that my soul knows it well. A lot of us do not accept this truth. It's never made it to our heart. You've got to understand and internalize and accept that my soul knows well that I'm a wonderfully made creature of God. My daughter came up to me a few weeks ago one day. Daddy, hug. I said, sure, come on up. Gave me a big hug and as I set her down on my lap, her facing me. She looked at me and she took two of her hands and she put them on my cheek. And then with her big hazel brown eyes, she began to study my face, staring. I said, what a beautiful moment. Father and a daughter. Daughter in love with her father. I thought that she was going to say something so sweet. And then she said this, Daddy, why do you have so many holes in your face? <laughs> if it wasn't my daughter, I would have said, don't worry, in a few years you'll have them too. <laughs> my face looks like a moon crater because of severe acne growing up. So I, I understand the struggle of not looking good, thinking that my self-worth was almost nothing. People who knew me back then and knew me now would often be amazed. You were so quiet back then. You were so timid. You were so shy. And the reason I was those things because I was self-conscious. How could I look like this? My self-worth and esteem was pretty much zero. So bad was it that my dermatologist prescribed me on a pill called Accutane. A few months later, the doctor stopped prescribing it to me because studies came out that Accutane possibly caused depression and suicidal tendencies in young people. Now, can you imagine that? I was already pretty down. And here I'm taking a drug that's supposed to clear up my face that causes more depression 
and suicidal thoughts. I know for some it, it's effective, but there were some side effects. Can you imagine that? My entire self-worth because of my face. My confidence was low. Why would God make me like this when everyone seems to have flawless skin? And then I remember going to church and the preacher preaching a message one day. Talked about us being made in the image of God. And somehow that message sparked something in me. This utter realization, somehow that truth, which I'd known since I was young, was, was brought forth real to me. I am made in His image. And there I began to gain my confidence back. Acne and all, crater and all. Who cares what I look like? I am His creation. I'm a product of a God that never makes a mistake. Did you hear that? I'm a product of a God that does not make mistakes. So that's why you know me today as one who makes fun of himself. I like to do that. Because of the truth that I made in His image. And when you have the confidence that you are made in the image of God, fat or thin, short or tall, pimples or not, which is only a phase for most people, you know that you're fearfully and wonderfully made. And there you will find beauty in yourself. The problem of the current Hollywood culture, the beauty culture, is that we portray, they portray a beauty that is temporary, that is fleeting. They always say we're looking for the demographics of the 18 of 48 as if the outliers aren't beautiful. Hollywood rarely focuses on the beauty of a spirit-filled life. Rarely, almost never focuses on the beauty of our creation in the image of God. Don't you ever forget that beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And God sees you as beautiful. The psalmist realized that I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, of which I'm a part of. And my soul, the depth of my heart, knows this well. If you see everyone in the image of God, you will see each person as being beautiful, including yourself. I like the story told by Joel Stowell in his book, Fan the Flame. He talks of his time when he went to West Africa. And there, talking to the missionaries, the missionaries told him uh, that in that culture, the larger the women, the more beautiful they were thought to be. In fact, there was a young missionary with a very skinny wife. Uh, and the nationals told them that her skinniness was a bad reflection on him. He obviously was not providing well enough for her. Joel Stowell writes, there's a proverb in this part of Africa. And it goes something like this. If your wife is on a camel and the camel cannot stand up, your wife is truly beautiful. I love that. Beauty is about the soul. It's about how God uniquely made us. That's why I love Big Hero 6. Finally a hero that is fat. The heart of gold, of course. But you know what I mean. You're not a mistake. And when you can accept that in the way that you look, then you can focus on shining brightly for the Lord. 
You know, see, so many of us are so preoccupied with the way that we look. Three to four hours in the beauty salon, one or two hours at the gym, those are all good things. Can't even spare five minutes to exercise our soul. Not even ten minutes to speak about the condition of the heart, which is the beauty that is lasting. When we can stop focusing on the outward and work on the inward, then we begin to focus shining brightly for the Lord. Remember the verse, Matthew 5, 16? Let your light so shine before men that they may see what? Your beauty? No. That they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. You are not here to impress the world with your beauty. And you are very beautiful people. You are to shine so brightly because your heart is so big. It radiates Jesus Christ that you glorify the Father in heaven and they don't look at your facial feature. They see the glory of the Lord coming out of your life, shining brightly before men. Let your life so shine because you are wonderfully made. And so as we close, let me recap for you. That God sees beauty in one with a beautiful heart. God sees beauty in those with a beautiful heart. We see beauty in others, secondly, when we look for a spirit-filled life, realizing that outward beauty is temporary. We see beauty in others when we look for a spirit-filled life. And finally, we see ourselves beautiful because we are wonderfully made in the image of God. When you can truthfully live out these principles in your life, then those three problems we talked about at the beginning of this sermon can be solved. Because our admiration, our attention, is not about our outwardness. The admiration of all is in our beautiful heart. The self-identity that people struggle with looking younger or wanting to be younger is solved because now our identity is as one who is spirit-filled. A follower of Jesus Christ, one who is spirit-filled. And our confidence, however we look, is not based on what we wear or how we look that day. Our confidence is in as God's beautiful creation. You see, when we can accept how God sees beauty, it totally changes the way we live. As we close this sermon and this series, culture change requires in us life change. And when we can understand what life change entails, it will radically change our perspective. I leave you with these words from an old gospel group called the Williams Brothers. And they have a song, but this is the chorus. It goes something like this. I'm just a nobody trying to tell everybody about somebody who can save anybody. You like that? It's great. When we aren't too worried about our 
outward self. And we work on the beauty of our life. We can say with all joy and gladness, I'm just a nobody trying to tell everybody about somebody who can save anybody. That's who we are. We're nobodies. Yet by the grace of God, He chose us. Telling everybody our mission about somebody, that great Jesus Christ, who came to save anybody, sinners like you and me. That is the cultural mandate of why we are on this earth. And until we see Jesus Christ again, we are to transform the culture so that we can say, I'm just a nobody trying to tell everybody about somebody who can save anybody. Let's pray. Father, for your word, a reminder even to me, I thank you. Thank you that years ago, a preacher preached the message about being created in the image of God. And from then on, I realize I am special in your sight. May not be called beautiful by the world, but beautiful in your sight. And that's the most important thing. May it be that it is the reflection of each person here that they would seek the beauty that lasts forever, a life that is spirit-filled, cultivating a beautiful heart. I pray that when people come in contact with this community of believers called the church, that they will acknowledge that GCCP is a beautiful church because the people of this church radiate Jesus Christ. They shine brightly because of their heart. And that their heart is so big, no one cares about what they look like. That's the prayer for myself in this church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.